thank you again for having me. Thankful for this message that the Lord's blessed Brother Ray to present to us this morning. I'm going to echo his sentiments earlier about the pleasure of getting to, to know him better and spend more time with him and with Brother Leroy and with you all. Um, it's a real blessing to to have fellowship with the saints of God and to rejoice in our common salvation and the truth that we've been blessed to receive and believe. It's really difficult as a minister when you are asked to speak second after hearing good preaching. The temptation or the question that arises is, do I stick with the message that's already on my mind that I've been thinking about, or do I stay with the theme that has been said? And honestly, this morning, I really have been captured by the thoughts that Brother Ray has presented and how the application of these truths works in our lives. So pray for me that the Lord would direct my thoughts and the words that I'm going to speak to you. You know, it's so true that everyone in this world, to some extent or another, is looking for healing. You don't have to look very far to see that. You can see it on infomercials. You can see it in the psychobabble of the world. You can hear it on television. And you can see it in your own experience and those that you know. No one is satisfied with the condition that they are in, at least no one outside of Christ. There's a dissatisfaction that is natural to the human existence. That's why people can pursue satisfaction through gaining wealth. And the more wealth they get, the more dissatisfied they are, the more empty it leaves them feeling. And in the scripture, we do find record during the ministry of Christ of several who were seeking healing. Some who came to Christ asking for healing. Others who heard that there was a pool that if you got to it at the right moment and you were the first to enter in, healing would be there. Others who didn't even know where to look and yet healing came to their lives. But as Brother Ray so rightly pointed out, the healing is not the focus. And the object that is used as an instrument of healing, that's not to be the focus either. The focus of every miracle in Scripture is not the miracle itself, but the one doing the miracle. And one thing we have to realize when we think about the presence of miracles in the work of the Lord and His church, you know, there's a lot of focus, a lot of people talk about, you know, are miracles still around or did miracles cease? And and most of the argument surrounding that is about the, the miracle itself as though the apostles and those who were blessed with miraculous gifts and ministry did that at their own will and for their own purpose to draw attention to themselves. But that wasn't the case at all, because the miracle only points to the miracle worker, and the healing only points to the one who is the healer. And we don't have to look far in Scripture to understand that healing is a work of the Lord, and it's a valuable work, It's a work that we all have need of, but it's a work that none of us can attain to. You see, we don't find healing because we want to be healed. We find healing when we find the healer. When we find Jesus Christ, when he becomes real to us, when we find our dependence upon him. Isaiah talked about this in his 53rd chapter when he says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And he begins to describe the person of Jesus Christ. 
And what does he say about him? He says, he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. His stripes are healing. As Brother Ray so rightly pointed out, it's his righteousness applied to us. That is our healing. And Jesus Jesus taught this in his ministry from the very beginning as he went forth preaching the gospel and healing individuals. Remember John the uh, John the Baptist sent men to Jesus there in Matthew chapter 11 saying, are you the one that should come or do we look for another? John was discouraged. John was in prison. John was feeling the suffering that attended the word of God. And John, who at one day boldly proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, now sends his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, Are you really him? Are you the one that should come? Or do we look for another? And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, You go show John the things that I've done. You go tell John what I've done. What have I done? I've healed the sick, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised to life. And the poor, the poor have the gospel preached to them. You ask if miracles still happen today. I tell you miracles happen today. The gospel is still preached in a world. The light still shines in darkness. John is not given the assurance, yes, I am who you thought that I was. He's told simply, consider my works. Consider what I do, what I've done, what I'm still doing. You tell John to reflect on that. I believe John was satisfied with that answer. John understood. Why? Because the Savior was here. The Savior had come. And healing had come. Healing is desperately needed, but healing can't be found in our own devices and our own efforts. If there was one thing that was taught there in the lesson presented this morning, this man who came to the pool, he was conveyed to the pool to seek healing, but even there looking at the source that he thought was the source of healing, he had a problem. I have no man to carry me, no man to pick me up when the water's stirred and always someone else rushes in ahead of me. Well, how often has that been true in your life, whether financially or educationally or otherwise, some job opportunity? You know, there's a country music song that says, uh, every time I get a leg up on the ladder of success, I slip and fall. Isn't that so much the way it is for us? This man's experiencing this in his life, and what frustration. I'm there, I can see the healing taking place. You know, the fact that this story is told the way that it is indicates it really did happen. We don't understand it, but the waters would stir and someone would get down into the water first and they would come out healed. That's a, a strange thing for us. It does seem, seem odd, unbelievable almost, but it's real. It really did happen. So here's this man sitting here looking at the pool and looking at people going down before him and just imagine him trying to pull himself along to get there first. And he's too late. Talk about too late doctrine. That's, that's sad. But you know, that's where we all find ourselves without Christ. We're all looking for a solution, looking for an answer. The world is full of people who are looking for answers to problems, looking for satisfaction, looking for healing. They, they look for it in all manner of places. And yes, some even come to the church of God looking for solutions and looking for healing and not finding it. Because they can't let go of themselves. This man came to that pool 
thinking he was going to find his deliverance. There's another story in the scripture of a woman who for a number of years was plagued with an issue of blood. It never stopped and she was weakened by this condition and she was unclean ceremonially. She was unable to even go and worship the Lord in his temple. She was afflicted by this condition for years and years and years and she'd been to all the doctors and all the priests and been everywhere seeking deliverance. And she heard the Lord was was coming into the village. What'd she do? She she crept up behind him. She came in, this unclean woman, and came to lay hands upon the Son of God. She grabbed a hold of the hem of his garment. And Jesus stopped and turned. He said, I perceive virtue has gone out from me. Someone came here in faith and received something from me. And he calls attention to this woman who was in a terrible predicament. But what she find in Christ, the object of her faith, she found healing. Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the only truth, the only life, the only salvation, the only healing. Oh, but when we have been healed, what a change there is in our lives. John chapter 9, I've always seen as a companion text to this section of John chapter 5. And what a wonderful, wonderful story. A story that illustrates the purpose of God, the power of His Christ, and the effect of a changed and healed life. Being brought to faith in Jesus Christ really is an opening of the eyes of the blind. And once opened, they cannot be shut. Chapter 9 begins, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. A man who had never seen the light of day. A man who had never seen anyone or anything. And Jesus passed by and saw this man, this man sitting there begging, this man sitting there with no ability to work, no ability to make a living, no ability to care for himself. And he didn't come looking for Jesus. Not like the man at the pool. He didn't come looking for healing. The man was resigned to his condition. He had never even known sight. He was living in darkness, literally. And Jesus passed by. And Jesus' disciples asked him, as Jesus observed the man, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born From our perspective, we think, why on earth would they ask such a question? And for us, the answer is obvious. Well, this man sinned and and his parents sinned. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But notice Jesus' response, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. His condition isn't a result directly of personal sin. And you know, that's true of everyone that enters the world. The sinful condition into which we're born is not because of who we are and what we're going to do. It's because of who our first father was. It's sin that is inborn sin. But we should never allow that to give us this deistic mindset that God just turned it all loose and doesn't do things with purpose. And Jesus clears that up for us right here. It's not because of this man's sin nor of his parents' sin but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. 
Now, I want to tell you, this is a principle that is true of everyone who is brought to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. If you believe the gospel today, it's not a credit to you and it's not about you for you to glory that I am an elect of God, that I'm a child of the King. Oh, no. That the works of God should be made manifest in him. And any value that exists in you or me or anyone who believes is in our acknowledgement of Jesus Christ and the work of God being manifest in us. And that's why there's no room for man to glory. No room for us to say, I have done this and I have done that. No room for us to take credit because it's the work of God in us. And Jesus himself makes this perfectly clear. He says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus declares something about himself here. He says, my time is short and the work that I do matters. The work that I do is a work that will be spoken of till the end of the world. And the work that I do is the work of God. I am the light of the world. And Jesus Christ says that again and again. And sometimes Jesus says something else. He says, you are lights in the world. But how are we lights? We're lights as we reflect his light, as we declare his glory and his coming. Having spoken thus, Jesus spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. You know, Jesus Christ could heal in any way he wanted to. He did a lot of different ways. There were those that he went to and he laid hands on, and they rose from the dead. There were those who came to him and begged of him, and he had a conversation with them before he finally did what they asked. There were those who came to him and said, my child is sick, come and heal. And there were others who said, my child is sick. And Jesus says, I'll come and heal. And and the man says, no, no, don't come. Just speak the word and it'll be done. And Jesus did it. So many examples, Jesus could heal in any way. And I tell you, Jesus could have healed this blind man by simply saying a word, saying, receive your sight. But no, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did a little bit of work. He made some clay out of his spit. Sounds dirty, doesn't it? Sounds sounds repulsing to even think about. Jesus spit on the ground. He made mud. He put it on the eyes of the one that was blind. And then he gave him a task. He said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Go where I send you. Go and do what I've told you to do. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Very similar to the story of this man by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man rose and took up his bed and and was so excited, he just left, just went away. Well, this man who's never seen before receives instruction from the Lord and he goes and he washes his eyes, and he came away seeing. And everyone took note of this. This man had grown up, he'd spent time, he'd lived in this community, he'd been seen, witnessed, people knew him, they knew he was blind. He came away seeing everyone that saw him. The neighbors, therefore, 
And they which before had seen him that was blind said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. And others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. One who has been touched by the presence of the Lord, one who's been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, one who has experienced his healing touch, cannot but declare, I am he. I am the one that was blind. I am the one that was lame. I am the one that was helpless, that could do nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. And this man, not knowing the source of his salvation, not knowing the source of his deliverance, says, I am he. I was blind. You know, no Christian who is of use in the kingdom of God spends their life as a Christian denying their past, hiding from their past. They declare boldly, I am he. The Apostle Paul illustrates that so clearly as he writes to Timothy and says what? I am the chief of sinners. Yet God set me forth as an example. If he could save me, there is no one so far from him that salvation is not possible. The Lord's salvation is that great, that glorious. This man said, I am he. Which begged the question. They asked him, how, how were your eyes opened? It's not been heard from the beginning of the world that one who was born blind would have their sight restored. I'd venture to say that's true to this day. Medical marvels notwithstanding, I don't think we've ever given sight to one that was born without sight. He answered and said, A man that's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. And said they unto him, Where is he? And he said, I know not. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. We're not going to go into all the detail of the story this morning. It's too much reading. But the man recounts accurately what the Lord did in his life. He doesn't simplify it too much. He doesn't say a man named Jesus healed me. He tells exactly how he healed him. He has a testimony to share and he shares it. We need to be careful that when we talk about Christ and his salvation, we make it real, we make it personal. We talk about how he saved us. Because if you've experienced his salvation, you have a testimony to share of it. That's how we know it's real. It's authentic in our own lives because Jesus Christ has touched us. And maybe that's an important point to note here. Jesus didn't just speak words. He reached out and touched the man. And there's a reason that's emphasized throughout Scripture. John in 1 John says what? That who, the one that we've seen with our eyes, we've heard with our ears, our hands have handled the word of life. He's that real to us. It's nothing esoteric, nothing imaginary, nothing that we hope for and think might be out there in space. No, Jesus Christ is that real. And you know, Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples after his resurrection, and Thomas was doubting, and Thomas said, I won't believe unless I put my hand in his side and I put my fingers in the nail prints of his hands. Jesus appeared to Thomas. He said, Thomas, reach forth your hands. Touch me, feel me, handle me. Thomas didn't do it. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. But then Jesus says, you've seen me and you believe. 
more blessed are those who see not yet believe. The faith of those who are in Christ Jesus today is just as real, just as solid, just as sure as those whose eyes laid upon him. This man says, I know the man's name was Jesus. I don't know where he is. I don't know who he is. But I know I was blind and now I see. Well, of course, that caused a great uproar in the in the community, in the city. He was dragged before the, the Pharisees in the synagogue who inquired three times, tell us, how is it that you were made to see? He says, a man named Jesus anointed my eyes with clay, told me to go wash. I washed and I came away seeing. They said, yeah, really, tell us how you actually came to see. They called his parents. Is this your son that was born blind? And is this really what happened? They said, well, he is our son. As to by what means he seeth, we know not. Ask him. He'll tell you. They asked the boy again. The man says, a man named Jesus, he healed me. He said, don't you know this man, Jesus, is a heretic? Don't you know this man, Jesus, is not a man of God? Don't you know that we've declared this man, Jesus, to be outside of the truth and outside of the synagogue? Don't you want to rethink what you have to say about this man? I love the expression of faith of this man who didn't even really know who Jesus was. Verse 24, they called the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Speaking of Jesus, what blasphemy. We know this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Education is important. Study is important. Knowing the word of God is important. And it's a lifetime work trying to understand the word of God. We never get it all figured out. And we're instructed, study to show yourselves approved unto God. We should study the word. We should always seek greater understanding, greater knowledge. That essential declaration, that essential testimony, that heartfelt yearning, need, desire for the Lord Jesus Christ, that's something no amount of study can give us. And we're not judged based upon our degree of knowledge. Listen to this expression of faith. Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. Well, what blasphemy? How can he even say such a thing? He's going to learn more here shortly. But that infant faith cries out, this one thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see And that was the expression of that man by the pool of Siloam. He was walking, he was leaping, he was jumping about. And they came to him and they said, this man's a sinner. He healed you on the Sabbath day. What a horrible crime. You know what the man said? The man said, I was lame and now I'm walking. Now I have strength. What a wonderful declaration. This man said, one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. The man was reviled by them. 
they asked again. How did he open your eyes? What did he do to you? He answered them, I've told you already and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Here's a disciple who doesn't even know if the Lord is a sinner or not. He doesn't know who the Lord is, as becomes clear shortly. But he says, this man is my master. I'll follow him till death. They said, this man is not of God. And we are Moses' disciples. Aren't you going to follow us as we follow Moses? I love the irony here. The sarcasm. Why, herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened my eyes. You've been witnessing him preaching for a period of time now, and you don't know anything about him. All I know is he's opened my eyes. I know him better than you do. It's not education that draws us to Christ. It's knowing him, experiencing him, being healed by him. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? This is this blind man talking. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou hast altogether born in sins. And dost thou teach us? Notice how that wraps back to the question the disciples asked at the beginning of the chapter. Why is this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? The Pharisees say the same thing. You were altogether born in sins. That's why you were blind. Are you going to instruct us? And they cast him out. Interaction with the saving work of Jesus Christ results in separation. Inescapable. If you've been born of the Spirit or professed that you have and nothing's changed in your life and your relationships, you need to do some serious wondering about whether you've even known the Lord. This man was cast out. The testimony of most who have followed Jesus Christ is that their relationships change rapidly. And that's as it should be. In fact, that's what the Lord taught. What did he say? He said, forsake. Father, mother, sister, brother, houses, lands, even wives, he says, for my sake and the gospel. Choose me, follow me, and you'll receive an hundredfold in my house, in my family, in my kingdom, and in the end eternal life. Followers of Jesus Christ, and they unite with the church of Jesus Christ, their best friends become those of the household of faith. Their family become those who are in church worshiping with them. And there's a separation that has to occur. It happens. Your best friends become acquaintances because your time is taken up serving the Lord. And for all of us Christians who struggle with this, this divide, this contention between our friends and family and the church, and we have to decide, am I going to go to church or am I going to go to a family reunion? Am I going to go and worship the Lord or, or fellowship with the saints? Or am I going to go spend time with my children and my grandchildren? All of those things 
that are a struggle for us indicate that Jesus Christ is not first. It's something we should consider. Because the greatest testimony and the greatest outreach to those that are outside of Christ and His church is our commitment to Him. When the children and the grandchildren realize grandma and grandpa would rather be at the house of God than in company with us. When our best friends, our fishing buddies, our bandmates, whatever it is that we have that secular connection, when they realize instead of coming and practicing band on Friday, Saturday night, we're going to go to a church meeting and hear the word of God preached. When they realize that instead of going fishing on a weekend at the state park, we're going to stay home because we're going to be in church on Sunday morning. That's a testimony that's beyond the words that we speak. But so many of us as Christians are content to know the word and know what we believe. And we want to have discussions with our friends that are outside of faith and tell them what they ought to believe and what we believe and how important it is to us. But when they say, let's go fishing, we say, okay, and we're, we're, we're out there fishing with them and missing the word of God. We talked about last night our obligation one to another to hold each other accountable, to exhort one another daily. But when we choose relationships in the workplace and in family over those relationships in the church, we're not supporting one another. We're not exhorting one another. We're not in each other's presence. And then we wonder as generations disappear from the household of faith because they have other priorities. And what's a synonym for other priorities? A synonym for other priorities is idolatry. Jesus Christ has to come first. So this blind man was cast out. Instant segregation here. You remember his parents refused to testify on his behalf because they had been warned if they believed in Christ, if they supported Christ, they'd be cast out of the synagogue. So they're staying in the synagogue, and now their son is cast out. Why? Because he had the boldness to say, this man, this man is of God. This man must be a true worshiper of God. Because look what God has done through him. Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Obviously the answer is yes, right? I mean, look at what this man has sacrificed. Look what this man has done. This man's been healed by the Son of God. Do you believe in the Son of God? The answer of faith again. He said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? So little knowledge, so little education, he doesn't even know what he believes. But he knows Jesus Christ is his Lord. He's a disciple. Tell me what I ought to believe and I'll believe it. You know, that's something I wish more professing Christians today would embrace. I wish I would fully embrace that truth in my life. Lord, whatever your word says, I'm going to believe it. If I don't know it now, teach me and I'll obey it. If we could see the word of God as such an authority in our lives that whether our church has practiced it, whether our tradition has taught it to us, whether we've ever heard it before, if his word says it, 
will believe it. Now, that doesn't mean believe anything. doesn't mean be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, every novel idea. uh, Novel ideas ought to frighten us. But if we're persuaded in the Word of God, by the Word of God, that it's what is taught, then we ought to embrace it. This man says, Lord, who is he that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. This man's gone from being a disciple of Jesus to a worshiper of Jesus in a moment. Because Jesus says, who I am is not just your teacher, your master, your instructor, your healer. Who I am is your God. And with Thomas, this man says, my Lord and my God. The sister expression to this man's confession of faith here is that of Peter and the apostles in Matthew chapter 16. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, they say a lot of things. They say you're a prophet. They say you're a teacher. They say you're a miracle worker. They say you're one raised from the dead. The most ludicrous thing in that statement is some say you're John the Baptist. He was contemporary with John the Baptist. John had just been killed. How could this be? They say a lot of things. Jesus says, whom do you say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are God. That was a bold statement. You're God manifest in the flesh. That wasn't something the Pharisees understood of the Messiah. They saw the Messiah as a coming king. They didn't see him as God in the flesh. But Peter had understanding. Where did he get it from? He got it from God the Father. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. We need never to allow our understanding of doctrine, our understanding of theology, our expressions of faith to supersede or to overrule this childlike faith that adores, that worships, that acknowledges God and God's direct interaction in our lives. These men had it. You see that in the Apostle Peter as well at the close of John chapter 6. After Jesus has done a bunch of difficult teaching, declaring that that faith must be more than an expression and more than a desire for our own gain and benefit. You can't follow me for the miracles I perform. You can't follow me for the the food that you're fed. You can't follow me for anything you're going to gain. If you're going to follow me, you have to partake of my suffering. You have to partake of my death. You have to partake of the whole gospel. And this multitude vanishes. The multitude that was following thousands of people, they're gone while he's speaking. You know, my feelings would be hurt today as I'm speaking if you started one at a time just getting up and walking out. Jesus had a multitude of thousands to whom he was preaching. And hundreds at a time just started to vanish and leave. And by the time he was done, everyone was gone except the twelve and perhaps a few others, his own entourage, his own closest disciples. And Jesus isn't ignorant of the disappearing crowd. Jesus knows everything, and he's just seen over 6,000 people vanish in the period of a sermon. I don't know if Jesus preached an hour or if he preached five hours, but 
over the course of this sermon recorded in one chapter, the crowd had gone. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, will you also go away? Are you going to leave me too? And Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, that Christ, the Son of the living God. To whom shall we go? That man at the pool of Siloam had gone everywhere he could go and found no answer, no help, no healing. He had stretched himself beyond himself and found no help. The testimony of the saints of God, of faith in Jesus Christ, is there's nowhere for me to go. I've exhausted my own ability, my own works. I've exhausted my own understanding. I don't have any faith in my own ability to keep covenant, to keep my vow. I don't have any faith in any man's help. There's no one to pick me up, to carry me, to put me into the water. See she from man whose breath is in his nostrils. You can't trust men. You can't trust me. I can't trust you. The Apostle Paul there in his last days in Rome writes to Timothy and says, All men forsook me. No one stood with me. And what did he learn from this? Nevertheless, the Lord, he stood with me. He didn't forsake me. And I know he will never forsake me. I have no man. The man by the pool said. Peter said, to whom shall we go? We can't trust men. We can't trust our works. We can't even trust our faith. Remember the man who had the son who was afflicted by a devil and cast himself into the fire and the disciples couldn't free him from that devil? And Jesus came, and in a word, the devil was cast out. But in that interchange with that man, that father who loved his son so dearly, Jesus asked him, do you believe? The man had a moment of honesty that we rarely embrace. He said, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Myriads of Christians, myriads of Calvinistic Christians will encourage you you have nothing to do to find salvation in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you can do. All you have to do is believe. Never understood that statement. When you're trying to understand how you can find assurance of salvation, don't look to your faith. Don't look to your adherence. Don't look to your faithfulness. Look to Jesus Christ. Peter says, to whom shall we go? What's he saying? Lord, we'd leave if there was any other option. This was hard truth that Jesus had spoken. It's very personal truth to Peter. Because Peter hears Jesus say, you're going to have to die like I die. You're going to have to suffer like I suffer. You're going to have to partake of me and all that that connotates. And then in John 21, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to be bound and you're going to be taken where you don't want to go. You're going to be killed like I was killed. 
And Peter turns and says, well, am I doing this alone? What about this one? Don't worry about him, Jesus says. What is it to you if I will that he continue until I come again? None of your business, none of your concern. Finally, in the end of his ministry, Peter writes an epistle. He says, I'm about to die, even as the Lord showed me that I would. But before I depart, though you know these truths, I want to remind you. I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. I want you to remember before I die that it's worth it. That I don't regret my allegiance to Jesus Christ. I don't regret my service to Him. And if there were any regrets in Peter's life, it would only have been those times he said, Lord, be it not so unto thee. Those times when he said, I know not the man. Those times when he looked around to see what other people were thinking about him. But Peter says, I have no regrets. I have no regrets of preaching the gospel. No regrets of the loss of friends and family. No regrets for the lost experience of living as a Jew in Judea. No regrets at the loss of my city itself. No regrets. Why? Because there's healing in Christ Jesus. A healing that transcends every other desire in this life. A healing that brings contentment, that brings satisfaction, that brings peace, that the world can't afford. There are those who have financial success beyond belief. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. People who are popular beyond imagining, who are esteemed by the world. Michael Jordan, an example. Who have millions of dollars in everything many people pursue. And they have an empty life. And a life that is of no eternal value. And there are poor men and women the world over whose names are not known and never will be known. Whose wealth and be held in the palm of one hand. Who the world despises and looks down on those poor and afflicted, but whose treasure is beyond compare because their treasure is laid up in heaven and they have contentment, they have satisfaction, they have peace. Why? Because the Lord omnipotent because Jesus Christ is on his throne. Because they're going to dwell with him forever. What a blessing it is that we know Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is that we are able to let go of our own strength, our confidence in the flesh. And we're able not to seek after the things of this world, but to seek after Jesus. And the promise of Scripture is if we seek Him, if we feel after Him, we will find Him. In finding Him, we cannot let go. Like Peter, who said, Whom shall we go? The only satisfaction, the only peace, the only hope is here in His Word. And Jesus Christ takes this Word from the page 
lives are in our minds and our hearts. And the Holy Spirit, even as he promised, takes his law, his word, and he writes it in our hearts and inscribes it in our minds. Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you. How true that is. You'll no more teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. But what comfort it is. That scripture doesn't stop there. It says, all will know me, from the least unto the greatest. Efforts may be made to keep the gospel from being preached. And maybe due to my disobedience and my rebellion, I might not go and preach where I'm commanded to preach. But nothing can hinder the work of the Lord. And whether, like the lame man, we come to the place of healing, seeking healing, and the Lord finds us there and communicates his word, or like this blind man or simply laying by the side of the road, satisfied to a degree knowing we'll never see, we'll never understand. And the Lord seeks us out. He touches us. He sends us to the place of learning. You know, the Apostle Paul experienced that. He'd heard preaching. He'd heard Stephen at the time of his, his martyrdom. He'd heard a lot of preaching and rejected it, and sought to kill those who preached the gospel. But that day on the road to Damascus, when Jesus Christ spoke to him, interacted with him, touched him, and he cried out, Who art thou, Lord? He was changed. But what did Jesus do? He said, You go into a street that's called Straight, and there it'll be told what things thou must suffer, what you must do for me. And the gospel came, and the gospel gave knowledge, gave understanding, gave enlightenment. Wherever we are, The Spirit of God interacts with us and gives us life and dependence and causes us to let go of ourselves. The gospel gives light and understanding and directs our paths. None of us has arrived yet, but the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit having once begun, the Lord will perform that work till the day of Jesus Christ. And that's the day when holy and perfect and free from sin and free from all of the idolatrous affections of our hearts, will stand in his presence and in his likeness, and there we'll be satisfied. Thank you for your time and attention this morning. Amen.